I'm your host, Heather Evans. With the recent not guilty verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, we have seen just how conflicted Americans are about both the case itself and about the presence of firearms at protests. We've often heard from the NRA that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But in heated exchanges like the one that happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, how are we to draw distinctions between those who are good and and those who are bad? What type of impact will this verdict have on political demonstrations in the future? So to discuss this question and get a better handle on this topic, I've asked Alexandra Philandra, who is an associate professor of political science and psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago, to join me today. Alexandra currently serves as the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics with Cambridge. She specializes in American gun politics, immigration policy, race and ethnic politics, public opinion, and political psychology, and she's currently working on a book manuscript titled Race, Rights, and Rifles. So Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me on this program today. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here with you. So there's a lot to talk about, but I want to start in the beginning, kind of lay the foundation for the the overall topic of guns at protests. And I think the best place to start is really our fascination with guns in this country or our, our like of guns in this country. I know you've been doing research on this for a while now. Can you share any of that with us? Like, what do we know about kind of the, the likelihood of people owning weapons or their, their approval of owning weapons? So there are about uh, 400 million weapons in civilian hands today in the United States, which is uh, unique in the entire world. There is not a single uh, Western democratic country uh, that has uh, anywhere near the same number of civilian owned guns. Uh, And about one in three Americans, according to Gallup, the numbers actually are not uh, very accurate overall because we don't have a government-based database of of gun ownership, right? Mm -hmm. So we think that about one in three Americans owns at least one firearm. In reality, if you do the math, we are talking about on average gun owners in America. So that 86 million people who own firearms in America own between four and five firearms. And uh, that if you think that there's some people who have just one firearm, then you can extrapolate that there is a proportion of people and it's not an insignificant number. Uh, based on surveys, we're talking about uh, 10, 12% of the population that has dozens, if not hundreds uh, of firearms. So indeed for a portion of the population, and it's a significant portion of the population, firearms seem to be uh, very, very important. And uh, it's difficult to see the key narrative that exists today is, oh, people have guns for security. Um, But the question arises, how much more security does the 10th or 11th or 12th firearm uh, add 
relative to the cost, right? What's mm-hmm. the marginal level of security that you get by having a 10th or 11th uh, firearm in your house? By contrast, what is the marginal um, level of uh, risk that you're taking by having uh, all of these firearms? Because more firearms means more opportunity uh, for something to go wrong, to forget that something is unlocked or something is uh, uh, loaded or it's not in the right place. So um, we see this pattern of uh, people owning um, a lot of firearms, a, a lot more than just one firearm. And clearly it's not just security that motivates this. Yeah. Now, are there certain demographics who are more likely to own firearms or say own multiple firearms? So owning firearms is not a cheap proposition. Mm -hmm. So people who own firearms and who own multiple firearms tend to be better off. They're middle or upper middle class people. So um, the profile of um, a gun owner is a upper to upper middle class white male who is middle to older age. Okay. Uh, And uh, it also tends to be somebody who is uh, conservative or Republican. That's if you want to describe the typical sort of the archetype of the gun owner, it's it's a white male who is uh, not poor, and not very young. Now, I noticed in one of your articles that you spent some time talking about the NRA, and I I mentioned them briefly in the opening of the show today, but the NRA has not always been kind of pushing back against gun reforms. Isn't that correct? There was a time when they, they weren't really doing that to the extent they are now, anyways. They were different. Yeah. The NRA... Um, is a very interesting organization uh, because the NRA is, uh, was formed not a, as an advocacy organization. What we see today is a very different kind of uh, organization than what existed in uh, the 1870s. The NRA was formed in 1871, right after the Civil War. Uh, It was formed by Union Army officers who were very upset by the lack of um, shooting skills among Union soldiers. They wanted the the U.S. Army to improve the shooting skills of uh, the, uh, uh, the population, basically, the draft age population and of the militias, the militias. Mm -hmm which were, today we think of the militias as, uh, you know, these private organizations that exist in Michigan or in Montana, and they are some kind of uh, outside of the state uh, or organizations, like uh, their own thing. But in the 19th century, the militia were part of the military system of the United States. They were state When we talk about the militia, we're really talking about the equivalent today of the National Guards. So it's the National Guards that were a big concern for the NRA, and they wanted to reform the National Guards 
to make them basically better soldiers. So it's out of a military ethos of uh, the idea that learning how to shoot properly and how to be a disciplined soldier makes you also a good citizen. Because in the, the American ideology of democracy, the way that Americans understand uh, in the 19th century and in the 18th century, what it is to be a good citizen, good citizenship consists of two parts. One is to be politically active and vote and engage in the community uh, in politics and run for office and basically be concerned about the public good. But in order to do that, in order to also know what is in the public good, the Americans believed that being in the military and uh, being trained to be a good soldier and to give your life to sacrifice for the country is an important component for being able to be a good political member of the community. It was only this readiness to sacrifice and this readiness to basically give up your personal interest, whatever was good for you, your, uh, your money and your family and your everything that you valued personally for the good of the country that made you also an enlightened steward of uh, politics, of the public mm -hmm. good. That was the ideal citizen, the citizen soldier, the, the person who would give up their comforts and the personal life to go and fight for the country. And that's what entitled you to be a citizen in the political sense. It was your readiness and your participation, which is why military service in the early Republic was mandatory. All white men, because only white men were free citizens, were required to serve in the military between ages of 16 and 45. The Uniform um, Militia Act of 1796 specified that all men had to buy their own weapon because the state could not provide, there was no budget of the federal government. There, the states didn't have a budget. So they were required to bring a military firearm and come to muster and participate in formal military exercises uh, as, as often as the state required. Uh, and that was what the military system of the United States looked like in the early 19th century. So uh, for a variety of reasons, that didn't work very well, mostly because Americans didn't like conscription and didn't like serving in the military. So by the late 19th century, it was mostly volunteers rather than conscripts who participated in the militia and the, in the National Guards. But they were not very well trained because the states didn't train them. And then the and in the war, they performed so badly that uh, the NRA, these officers decided to create this organization to train citizen soldiers to both instill patriotism and the readiness to die for the country and make them better political members in that way through sharpshooting and through training in the arts. So by being a better soldier, 
they thought that they were making them also better citizens. Um, and that was the model that they uh, worked on. And um, in uh, these people were the early patrons of the NRA because they were also officers of the National Guard. They were politically very, very well connected. Guess who else was a member of the National Guard or a, a senior officer in the National Guard and very enthusiastic about uh, a reform of the National Guard and I'm very enthusiastic about uh, promoting the citizen soldier model, Theodore Roosevelt, president. So uh, at a time when Theodore Roosevelt comes to power, um, also in Congress, uh, there are several people who are key uh, political decision makers and who are also out of the National Guard, as are the, uh, the sponsors of the NRA. Uh, and all these people come together and reform the National Guard, nationalize the, the National Guard. And within the law, they specify a budget for the NRA specifically. They create a new program, which is a civilian marksmanship program. Through this program, they give this program essentially uh, a monopoly to the NRA. And... Uh, that's how the NRA develops a, a significant base because mm -hmm. it is actually a federally sponsored and federally connected organization with deep, deep ties to the military establishment. And its goal at this time is essentially to train the draft age male population for war. Um, but this is a time when the draft age male population who gets to be trained for war at arms is a very specific looking population. It's just white males. This is the time of Jim Crow. And this is a time when women are basically not thought as um, capable of being in the military. So only white men uh, are considered capable of being riflemen, of carrying rifles, of being combat ready soldiers. Uh, everybody else may and can have a role in the military. Women are nurses. African-Americans are um, drivers and cooks and uh, all kinds of, of uh, support personnel. Mm -hmm. But the real soldier, the real citizen soldier is a white man. So do you think that that, like everything that you've just described about the way the NRA really got its feet in the door helps us understand now the statistics we see regarding kind of who owns weapons and how many weapons that they own? Yes, I do. I think that this is a very long held ideology about American citizenship, about mm -hmm. who gets to be a good American citizen. It is basically how America I defined democratic citizenship for a very, very long time. Uh, up until the 60s, 1960s basically, the country's official ideology in a sense defined 
uh, democratic citizenship and political membership in these dual terms of political participation and military uh, training and participation at arms. And the two wars, of course, the two uh, world wars definitely contributed to that in, in different ways. Um, but this is a very long-standing ideology and culture that ties the idea of American citizenship and who is a good citizen to arms. Well, let me pause for just a moment for those of you who may just now be tuning in. Hi, this is Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and I've been chatting with Alexandra Philindra, who is an associate professor of political science and psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago who is actually right now working on a book manuscript titled Race, Rights, and Rifles. And we've been discussing a little bit about the history of the NRA and then also our, as a country, our love of weapons. It seems like that there's a, there's a large percentage of our citizens who um, believe very strongly in the Second Amendment, both owning one gun, but then also some individuals owning many, many guns. Um, and I want to shift our conversation now a little bit to what just happened with the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and also thinking about the effect that verdict might have on future demonstrations. So recently, um, Alexandra, I I read a piece that you wrote in the Washington Post about um, the chilling effect this might have on demonstrations and how there are certain groups that are less likely to express themselves if guns are present at protests. Could you tell us a little bit about your research? So in June of this year, I uh, conducted a survey, a national survey of white and African-American American citizens uh, and asked them whether, to what degree they think it is appropriate for people to bring firearms to demonstrations and also to whether or not they would show up at a demonstration knowing that people would be bringing weapons. And what I found was that for a majority of people, it is very inappropriate to bring firearms in a demonstration because people recognize that this is a political space where debate takes place where ideas are exchanged and freedom of speech cannot happen in the context of some people being armed. Arms are weapons of war and are forms of intimidation. And in American history, arms have been used primarily for intimidation. And people sort of have that in the back of their minds. Um, So the vast majority of people, or most people, are very negative on guns at protests. Now, is that among, um, in terms of partisanship, do we see that for Democrats, independents, Republicans, everyone across the board? It's mostly Democrats and independents are more likely to disapprove of firearms. Republicans, less so. The same is true when we look at whether people would participate Mm -hmm. in in a demonstration that had guns. There, what we see is that Republicans and men uh, are more likely 
to say that they would participate. Uh, still, the numbers are small, but there is a significant um, difference when it comes to the numbers of people who say that they definitely would not participate. So Democrats and women are far more likely to say, I, I, there's no way I am going to a demonstration um, knowing that there, there might be guns there. Um, whereas men and Republicans are more uh, less sanguine about it. They, they're like, yeah, I might go. Did you find anything about race? There was no race effect. Okay. So this was not a racial difference, uh, at least not between whites and African-Americans because that's what uh, the sample of the study was. But um, it was a gender and it was a partisan uh, difference. So what, and that is problematic, right? Because both men and women have um, different views and different preferences in terms of policy, in terms of ideas, in terms of what they want from government. And that is even more so between Democrats and Republicans. If systematically a portion of the population feels unsafe to participate in civil, civic risk discourse and in petitioning government because of the presence of firearms, that creates a significant asymmetry in the representation of groups because we know from research that political uh, protests, uh, peaceful political protests are very, very important sources of information for elected officials about what people want and what direction people want the country to be going and, the, and policies to be going. And if a significant portion of the population is deterred from participating in this form of very important First Amendment uh, protected uh, activity, political activity, because other citizens bring firearms, which to many people uh, feels intimidating, then people who are deterred from participating, their voices are silenced. And that is a problem if we want to call ourselves a democratic society. Yeah. And when I read your piece, I was thinking about all the demonstrations that I've attended and I, I would fall into the group that would not feel safe. Um, I mean, women's marches, marches about, let's say, Black Lives Matter, uh, any, any demonstrations like that, if there were firearms present, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable going. So I'm not surprised by the gender angle of that. And I also think that's tied back to everything that we just discussed in the first half of the show, women not really being part of the NRA to begin with, or not, not really the ones owning the weapons either. Now, I, I want to ask this question because I think it's, it's important in terms of moving forward. What can, I mean, since elected officials should want to view protests and use protests to inform their opinions about what to do in government, what can elected officials do to make sure that people still feel comfortable enough to express their voices at protest? My understanding of uh, legal precedent as it exists right now is that states have wide authority to introduce restrictions on the presence of firearms in uh, 
particular spaces and in different um, contexts. For example, here in Illinois, you can't bring firearms in, um, in our, I work for a state school. In our state school, you cannot bring firearms into our buildings. And uh, there have been states that uh, because of the, the, the various armed protests, uh, passed legislation that says can't bring firearms into the Capitol. Uh, from my understanding, all of those laws should be legal. States have the authority to enact that le- type of legislation. However, it is very, very unlikely that many states, especially Republican control states, uh, would go in that direction. Actually, what we are seeing is the opposite direction. For example, Virginia, all but two, I think, of the counties have passed Second Amendment sanctuary ordinances that basically elevate the Second Amendment to uncontested law that basically, essentially what they're claiming is that there is nothing that can prevent people. There is no law that can prevent people from owning and carrying firearms, which essentially vests with a level of immunity and impunity firearms owners. And we are, because of this, we are creating situations now. And also like the self-defense legislation that we have on the books in many states seems to be, as we saw in um, Wisconsin, is not capable of um, addressing the situations that we are going to be seeing in the future. So in a sense, my worry is that we are returning to a time of vigilantism that existed in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, where people under the guise of being the rule of law, which is what a lot of these people are claiming, right? Right. That they represent the rule of law, that because they're the good citizens, they're the enlightened ones who know what is proper and what is to be defended. And as a result, they are entitled to use fatal force to defend their understanding of how the system should work. Private individuals who have not been deputized officially by anyone, they're not elected, they're not part of the democratic system, like Kyle Rittenhouse, just take a firearm, shoot people in the context of a political event, and then use the guise of self-defense to shield themselves from legal consequence. And that is what worries me and also the reason that I would not show up at a demonstration as well. I have a three-year-old child. I do not want him to lose a mother. Yeah, agreed. I was thinking when I was reading your piece about the Women's March and had there been weapons present at the Women's March that there would have been women leave, right? Like that. Oh, of and course. So, I mean, there were yeah. kids there. Right. Yeah. I mean, people had brought babies. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
And especially when you know, especially when it's counter demonstrators too, that you see these people who are clearly there for chilling purposes, right? That, you know, they're these groups that have no authority that show up to be deputies and to basically police the march. If you're saying that you're there as if you're a citizens group and you're there to police the march, you're there to police people's freedom of speech. That's what you're doing. You're not in any formal capacity. You're not an independent, um, neutral arbiter. You're not an official sanctioned body like the police. You are there to basically intimidate. That's that's all it is. Well, thank you again for being on the show. You've given me and everyone else a lot to think about. I really enjoy reading your work and I'm looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. Thank you. Um, So thanks everybody for listening. Again, this was Red, White, and Confused. If you missed any piece of this, you can listen to this again on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.